This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IV Press and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Welcome to Truth Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? I am doing. I'm doing the things. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy. That's what that means. And you know, everything takes a little bit longer during COVID-19. So I'm like, you know, and you, you know me well enough to know I'm not a person who, who finds a uh, a dignity or identity and just random dizziness. So I would like right. this to stop. <laughs> I would like it to stop today. <laughs> How are you doing? Know, e? What's right? up? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be back at the table. Honestly, it's been a minute. So <laughs> our listeners are never privy to when our recording schedule. Shoot, we aren't at this point. We aren't privy to our own recording schedule these days, thanks to COVID-19. So we, up, we try to up, make it up. work. Okay, we are literally building the plane as we fly this season. So, um, but I'm, I'm good day. on all things considered. It is. Yeah, I mean, all things considered, I'm um, good, you know, but I know a special guest at the table is about to help me to understand that I'm not good. And, <laughs> and that's, that's, and my healing, my healing is in that reality. I believe this. And so uh, y'all know Michelle is not at the table. So y'all know that means that we have a third person at the table and we have um, Sheila Wise Rowe at the table, y'all, for the behind the book, Healing Racial Trauma. Hey, Sheila, how you doing, sis? I am well. Yeah, I'm, as you said, uh, yeah, this has been an interesting 2020. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I tell you. Yeah. (laughs) It's been really interesting. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm doing okay. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we are so glad that you're doing okay and that you are yet holding on in this crazy year Absolutely. that is 2020. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, y'all, just in case you don't know who Sheila Wise wrote, is our um, fellow prayer warrior. Uh, by the way, she yeah. actually was one of um, our prayer leaders for the Juneteenth Prairie yeah. event, which was just such a blessing uh, to us and to our listeners and everybody that watched. Uh, so let me let you know a little something about Sheila. Sheila Wise Rowe holds a master's degree in counseling. She hails from Boston, Massachusetts, and has lived in Paris, France, and Johannesburg, South Africa. For over 25 mm-hmm. years, Sheila has been a counselor spiritual director and speaker. Sheila is also a truth teller who writes passionately about matters of faith and emotional healing for several publications. She advocates for the dignity, rights, and healing of abuse survivors, those carrying racial trauma and racial reconciliation. Sheila has taught on trauma, healing, and psychology at several U.S. colleges and at the Africa Peace Institute in South Africa. Sheila's newest book is Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. Welcome to the table, Sheila. Thank you. We are honored to have you. Oh, my goodness. Um, So, you know, 
with behind the book, you know, we uh, we gonna go behind the book. But before we go there, we really want to <laughs> get a uh, a snapshot of just your own life and your own journey um, to faith, how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd love to hear that story uh, of of that transformation. Yeah. So I uh, I grew up in a home where um, very early on my parents were members of the Nation of Islam. And um, and this was in the 60s, and they basically mm-hmm. were um, drawn to it uh, because of uh, Malcolm X. And and so, you know, I was really, really young at the time when they were involved. And then um, shortly after Malcolm was assassinated, um, they, they basically weren't practicing anything. They were really disillusioned um, with the death of um, Dr. King and also Malcolm X. And so... Uh, I grew up in a home where, you know, I would occasionally go to church with uh, mm. an aunt who was a Christian. Um, and, but it was really more of a, a social thing. I really couldn't, um, or didn't understand how to, how that translated into my daily life and how I engaged with other people or how I saw God. It, it really was more of a performance kind of a thing. Um, and so, I actually went, I was that way all the way through um, uh, high school, uh, experienced a lot of um, racial trauma and racism because of um, court-mandated busing in Boston, and um, still really not thinking about how does my faith, you know, impact that. And so I went through college and graduated from college, uh, got a degree in sociology, and psychology, and I was my first job was as a social worker, and I went into that position with a lot of passion, you know, that I'm going to go and impact and change the world. And I was working for what was called um, the Department of Social Services at that point, and so I worked um, with um, it was Child Protective Services, and it was intense. It was I was really at the cold face. I was overwhelmed, uh, and it just really felt uh, that what little that I was able to do, um, I constantly had to face places where I um, was sabotaged in a way Mm. in which my clients were sabotaged. And I was really on the the verge of burnout. Um, And around that time, I then uh, had a relationship with an addict who also was a cocaine Mm. dealer. So um, that experience, uh, the two of them, those experience really uh, was a shaking for me of realizing that my attempts at trying to be in control of my life, um, that, uh, you know, it wasn't working. And, and how did I move from being someone who wanted to save the world, quote unquote, but then here I am, I'm in a relationship with someone who is an addict and who's selling drugs. And it was just like, how, how did that happen? Um, and so it came crashing down at a point mm. where, Wow. Um, he threatened my life. It was, oh, wow. yes. my goodness. and then at that point, uh, I really, my mother at that point, she had a couple of years before that accepted Christ and, and we would have conversations along the way about God. And, um, and then because of what happened, um, with the guy, I, at that point had to come to this end of myself and surrender mm. um, my life. And so that was 1984. And wow. to do my life mm. to the Lord, and um, mm. and you know, since that time, you know, it's been a wild ride. 
Um, but God has been faithful and has walked me through lots of um, really interesting twists, twists and turns and painful ones as well. Um, and yeah, part of my um, faith calling too was just a commitment to 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 serve and um, and really uh, serving the marginalized. And so very early on, I was working in HIV ministry. So this is when it was first um, noted, like we were first starting to see um, and predominantly gay men dying of um, AIDS and mm. and also addicts. And so I, uh, I a lot of friends were were diagnosed and um, and so I started an HIV AIDS ministry at the mm. church that I was at. Mm-hmm. And so we were this was like about eighty six. Um, and uh, that also uh, shaped a lot of my faith in in terms of my really witnessing the Lord, really meeting people, even at the, at the last moment. And um, just this, um, the sense of his real heart to redeem and to heal. Uh, and, and I would say that going forward in my life, that my life in ministry of doing counseling uh, here, uh, some in South Af- and in Paris, and then the 10 years in South Africa, that all of these experiences really formed but my ministry, but also who I am as a person. Mm. Wow. Mm. What a, that is, what that a is so rich. Mm-hmm. It's so rich. And I, I, I have to say, Sheila, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about you is just, um, it's just your depth, how um, you're just, I, I, I consider you to be so far from shallow. <laughs> I mean, yes. I just feel like yes. uh, just oh, just yes. you have such such depth and and gentleness well. and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yes, a deep well, and I and I so appreciate that, and just it's just so accessible. So thank you so much for sharing that. You know, there's one piece that you said that stood out to me, um, and you talked about coming to the end of yourself, and um, and shared about that kind of relationship from many many years ago, and your faith journey, and you talked about surrendering your life to God at that point. And I was, you know, we have, you know, we don't, we don't assume who's listening to Truth Table because we, we get letters from all kinds of people. I wondered if you would share with us what, what you mean by what, what that process looks like or that epiphany or that, what, uh, what does that mean to surrender one's life to Christ? Um, so for me in that moment, it really felt that um, everything that I had tried to kind of craft my life or that to try to make sense of it, that it wasn't work. It didn't work and Mm. it wasn't working and it all felt empty. And so um, not unlike what I think a lot of people are experiencing right now in the midst of this whole COVID crisis and um, just the racism that we're experiencing that we're realizing, you know, the things that we've held on to, we thought might work, aren't working. Mm. Um, and so, uh, there has to be more and I, and that's the place that I got to that there has to be more than this. And, um, and then, so the, the place of just revisiting those conversations that I have with my mom about Jesus and, you know, that mm. he came to redeem and he came to make sense of it all. And he came to restore, um, my relationship with God, the father. And, yeah. uh, and so surrendering for me meant I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really allowing God to take control. I, I'm surrendering my idea of what my life should look like 
what um, I, how I should think, where I should live, all of that, mm-hmm. my entire being, I'm surrendering to someone who knows me even more and better than I know myself and who, who has the best interest, uh, my best interest at heart and who loves me unconditionally. And so that mm-hmm. was a, in some ways an, an easy ask, but I have to say in that moment, I, I had my, in my mind what it meant to be a Christian. Like I thought, okay, so Christian means that I've got to wear like long dresses and I've got to <laughs> put my hair up in a whatever, a bow. I just, you know, and so um, I, I had to surrender that. Like what I thought that was right. based on what I saw. Right. Um, sure. And so uh, I did. And so accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior uh, mm. it's, it's, it's a two-pronged thing. It's not just this acknowledgement mm. that he died on the cross for me, but him as Lord means that now he's in charge and I'm not. Um, and that's the that's the struggle every day. So I'm not saying every I've, day. I've, I've Come got on. to yes. make that decision every day. Keep Who it I think is in mm. charge? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm. That mm. is good. I absolutely love that honesty. It's every day, right? Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is oh, yeah. we yeah. are we are serial repenters, or oh, we yeah. ought to be as Christians, yeah. confessing, yeah. repenting. Yeah. Um, every day, it's yeah. a decision to take up your cross exactly. and follow the Lord, right? Exactly. Every day, mm-hmm. it's um, uh, yeah. resisting the urge to dethrone Him from our yeah. heart, right, and make ourselves yeah. God. Every yeah. day, yeah. that is the call mm-hmm. for us. Um, and it's there's nothing easy. The liturgy of our life. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it. definitely the the liturgy of our life, right? Is repentance absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, Sheila, I, you're such a uh, great storyteller, um, and very honest and real. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm curious about what um what led to uh, you writing "Healing Racial Trauma: The Road to Resilience." I'm curious about how you you decided to write this book. Um, what 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 led you to even write this book now? Yeah. So I, um, most of my, my life, I really have focused on um, counseling practice. And so mm. as, as a licensed marriage and family therapist, um, I was up until recently. And, you know, I, I really decided to just focus on spiritual direction and, and then writing. And so I became a member of a, a Redbud Writers Guild. And as a member there, it was a it was a safe space for me to start to practice writing, even for their the Redbud Post and um, their blog, and just kind of getting generally my words out and my story. Um, and one of the uh, authors, who's a member, Leslie Leland Fields, wrote a book, um, The Wonder Years, about forty women over forty and kind of our journeys. And so I'm in that. Um, and my husband and I co-wrote a book, The Well of Life. But I, I was realizing when I came back in 2012, um, 2016, sorry, uh, it was a, I noticed that things had shifted a bit in the U.S. And I'm, I'm, you know, U.S., Boston, born, bred, went to school here. Uh, and I, and yet I still, it still felt different. It felt like the climate in, in the U.S. had shifted. And, mm. and, that, um, and maybe because I'm up in, in the north. And people tend mm. to be polite, and although they have all sorts of beliefs and racist beliefs, even they were less open to sharing those beliefs. Uh, mm. and that just seemed like all every you know all the filters were off. Everybody was just saying whatever, and um, and I was noticing you know with the just increase in numbers of killing of 
black men and women, uh, what was happening on the southern border, all of that, that there was um, what I was listening and hearing, even the clients that I was seeing at the time, a lot of them were experiencing racial trauma. And mm. um, I, I was going to attend the fifth Festival of Faith and Writing. And so this was in 2018. And part of that was to write this proposal. So I wrote a proposal, a book proposal around um, healing racial trauma uh, to pitch it. You pitch it to different um, editors who are present at the festival as well as attending uh, workshops. And so I uh, brought the proposal there, you know, submitted it, didn't really get any responses. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to just, um, I'm going to attend the workshops and just enjoy that. And I'll go to the main room where all the authors, um, book representatives are, and, um, mm-hmm. and I'll just chat with people. So I did that. So I, <clears throat> I got to the point where I was supposed to be in a workshop. It was full. I had no opportunity. So I wandered into the main room and the, um, Cindy Bunch, who was the, one of the editors at IVP was there unbeknownst to me. Mm-hmm. She was talking mm-hmm. with someone else. And so, um, this is close. I just thought, you know what? I don't even know why I'm even here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so and I was talking mm. with someone else and she overheard me and said, Oh, you know, um, I'd like to hear what it is that you're writing. And so at that point I was able to sit down with her because she, the, all the editors had scheduled appointments and she said, my appointment, uh, just okay. mm. I don't have anybody. So can look at God. Yeah. Let me, <laughs> let me sit down and, and, and talk with you. And so, um, and, and in the course of talking with her, she was like, wow, okay. I'm, I'm definitely interested in hearing more. Um, I later had another um, publisher who was interested as well. And so I, I felt like at that moment that it really was, you know, you said, look at God. It literally, that was it. Mm-hmm. It was really no way because she said she, she wasn't looking at the submittables at that point. So she would not have seen it if she had not met me right there at that moment. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so this is 2018. Um, I, I got a contract with them and worked on it most of 2018 and submitted the proposal in, uh, I was like the end of January, February of 2019. Um, and so I was kind of upset that IVP was basically said to me, we're not going to release the book until January 7th, 2020. <laughs> wow. wow. I'm like, so, so people look at the book and think, wow, she must've just wrote this last week. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Two and a half years ago. So, um, wow. so mm. I really, mm. I have to say that it really, you know, it's God's timing. I, it's released because it's not, um, it, it certainly is timely and, um, you know, not my prayer is just that the Lord will really use it because, it, you know, we're in a lot of pain out there. And, um, yeah. Yes, we mm. are certainly in a lot of pain. And you're right. Um, God's time is it truly is the best. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those delays, we'll be like, I don't understand, Lord, mm-hmm. <laughs> not knowing, you yeah. know, uh, that obviously God knows exactly what's coming exactly. Um, is going to meet us. And so this book, um, it seems like it was not seems it's clear that it was written for such a time as this. I know we say this often. It's one of those. So it's turned into a Christian cliche, cliche at times. 
times, but no, really. Um, Healing Racial uh, Trauma, The Road to Resilience was written for such a time as this. And so we are grateful for you, Sheila. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and take a break right now? And y'all, as we're taking this break, we want you to go and buy Sheila's book. Um, uh, Use the coupon code TRUTH20. And uh, we will be right back after this break. And Mm -hmm. we will talk more about uh, healing racial trauma and get into what is that. Uh, So stay tuned. Buy the book during the break. And we will meet you back at the table. Hey, y'all. So, you know, the three of us at the table, myself, Michelle and Christina, are all anti-racist. As such, we are always trying to slay white supremacy in the name of Jesus. And so we are actually proud to share with you all this book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Wise Rowe. People of color have endured traumatic histories and daily assaults on their dignity. In the new book, Healing Racial Trauma, professional counselor Sheila Wise Rowe exposes the symptoms of racial trauma to lead readers to a place of freedom from the past and new life for the future. In each chapter, Sheila includes an interview with a person of color to explore how we experience and resolve racial trauma. And get this, our very own Michelle Higgins is an endorser of Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Wise Rowe. And of course, Sisters at the Table get a special discount. You can save 40% off of Healing Racial trauma when you order at ivpress.com using the promo code truth 20 the offer expires on september 30th don't forget to use your promo code tell them we sent you by using the code truth 20 at ivpress.com to get 40 percent off of sheila wise rose new book healing racial trauma the road to resilience Sheila, I'm so glad to have you here with us. You know, I'm I'm curious if you would uh, be willing to just walk through, um, you know, some some definitions. They don't have to be super clinical or textbook, but just to help people to get some handles about when you're talking about uh, racial trauma uh, and what it is. How are you defining this term? Um, and then we can kind of get in more into you know how people can maybe see or recognize some of these pieces within themselves. So I, I think first to start, um, it's just important to really have a sense of just the magnitude of what it is that we're experiencing. Because I think that when we say things like racial trauma or even systemic racism, people are like, well, that doesn't exist. It's like, you know what, that's a part of it. It's a massive mountain, actually. And so racism includes historical racism. And so whether it's, um, you know, enslaved Africans or whether it's um, what has happened to um, the indigenous peoples, um, et cetera. So we have historical racism, there's interpersonal racism that some people think that that's just what it is. It's just somebody did something to you. Um, systemic, uh, and people see it as this big kind of nebulous thing when in fact it isn't. It's really how um, racism is kind of baked into institutions um, in America, whether it's medical, um, financial, um, educational, that's racism is present there. There, there are ways in which it, we see it in public spaces, and so we're dealing with issues around monuments and what are those monuments communicating? You know, in, in, we're seeing Confederate monuments, and it's it's basically asserting this narrative of power um, and control 
Um, we see it in environmental racism in terms of where where black and brown people, um, you know, put into a pl- places in uh, communities where there's issues with the quality of the water or air um, or even access to public transportation. Uh, we see it also there are ways in which racism can be internalized by us. And we see that with with some folk who, are, you know, kind of are being propped up as of the the, you know, the conservative voice uh, for all black people that basically de- denying that racism exists, et cetera. Right. And, um, and then there are ways in which um, people can not want to associate with um, people of their ethnicity um, and their, their race. And, and so there's a distancing or defensive othering that happens with that. So all, if you look at all mm. of that, <laughs> mm. like you're experiencing multiple layers of this at any mm. time, uh, coupled with that, um, we're seeing uh, that with microaggressions, which are just little, you know, these, they can be small slights, but they add up over time. And, mm. you know, whether it's being pulled over 20 times, 40 times, 100 times, and, and that has been um, documented, um, those things wear on us, uh, ways in which we are told that, you know, what we we're experiencing and we're saying we're experiencing is not validated where there's gaslighting, which, you know, is this sense right. of, you know, that's not, that didn't really happen. That's not how it was. That's not what she meant. Right. right. And, you know, and, and so all of these things weigh on our minds, on our, hmm. on our bodies, our spirits. Uh, we, we, we basically experience stress from this and because we're, we're not able to really process all of this onslaught, uh, we ended up holding it in our bodies. And this mm-hmm. stress ends up affecting us. Our, our hormones and our minds, bodies are on high alert. And mm-hmm. uh, we're caught in kind of this endless loop because it's unresolved. And as a result, we start seeing these symptoms. And these symptoms, you know, we could say are symptoms of racial trauma. And they, they tend to range. It could be hmm. um, fear. You know, we're watching these these videos and these deaths and, and killings, and there's a vicarious trauma that happens for us. And so the fear of that, like that could be me or that could be my um, right. my son right. or my husband. Um, there's an increase. It, aggression is one um, as an act of just coming against that. It's just like I'm sick and tired of this. And mm-hmm. so we're seeing some of that um, in what's happening in the marches and um, some of the the looting that's happened, um, there's a there's an anger response that can come. Depression mm-hmm. is another one, just a sadness, and that's mm-hmm. really heightened right now with COVID, um, COVID nineteen, and we're seeing um, many of us know somebody who's died from it, and because yeah. of the high number of people in the black community, uh, we are experiencing that, um, <laughs> and, and so we're dealing with depression, we're dealing with anxiety, we're dealing with issues around shame is a another uh, another symptom of racial trauma. We can be very hypervigilant. Um, there could be pessimism. Um, sleep disturbance is a big one. Um, and just being able to, when you're dealing with trauma, it's hard to even organize your thoughts. Um, and so I, I've heard from more than one person that right now it's just been difficult. It's been difficult to, to write. It's been difficult yes. to study. Um, and And it's important for people to know that What's happening right now is just really highlighting um, what, and, and to some degree, has always been there. Um, but now uh, it's really bubbling to the surface 
because you have racism and you have what's happening with COVID-19. Um, and right. so it's time to attend to this. And so we start seeing also uh, a symptom is just relational dysfunction. So in our relationships are affected. Mm. Um, and, and particularly then we're quarantined inside uh, mm-hmm. the usual places of escape or whatever are gone. And so right. you're seeing increased numbers of, you know, calls to the police around abuse, um, mm-hmm. spousal abuse or um, child abuse. Uh, addictions is another um, symptom of, and that's just medicating, mm-hmm. trying to medicate mm-hmm. the pain away. Um, and then we just see, we see it physically. So some of the symptoms of racial trauma are physical, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, um, those mm-hmm. are a few of them. And, um, and so if you're experiencing any of these kinds of things that I've highlighted, you know, this is, um, this is something that you need to pay attention to because there, these are flags. These are red flags that are saying, pay attention. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's trauma that's happened. Um, hmm. that needs to be attended to. Wow. Thank you, Sheila. That's really practical because I was, I was, you know, we hear, sometimes we throw on these phrases and we, we know about the, we, we have an idea of what they might mean. Um, uh, and sometimes we do know what it means, but sometimes we don't know how to identify it uh, within ourselves or am I being dramatic? Right. And so in some ways we've, we've um, taken in that gaslighting, like, Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're doing too much. And it's like, wait, am I doing too much? Am I being dramatic? Um, but that's really helpful. I think that's going to help uh, our sisters um, at the table to at least locate themselves. Um, I know that, you know, when you listed some of that, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's really hard for me to write. You're right. I was like, mm-hmm, I do have, I, I already knew I had racial trauma, though. But <laughs> that really helped, you know, to uh, bring it down uh, to the ground. Um, <laughs> and because it's a lot, you know, and I, I, and I have to tell you, when you were listing off the many ways that it manifests itself, um, and it wasn't even an exhaustive list, right? Um, it, 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 it brought to mind just the exhaustion. Uh, that we feel as Black people, um, as um, people, non-Black people of color uh, feel as well. And so what uh, what jumped out at me when I was reading your book uh, is the, the mm. chapter on fatigue, right? And so I want to just read an excerpt here, and I just want you to talk about... Uh, yeah, what racial battle fatigue does to us. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and then you can unpack it for us, okay? Uh, this is in chapter two, y'all, verse, uh, uh, what's it, verse, Lord? I'll be in my Bible. Okay, but this ain't the Bible. Um, this is <laughs> page 23, uh, racial battle fatigue. I experienced vicarious trauma as I watched the nightly news reports of a racist incident. And soon I was experiencing racial battle fatigue, a term coined by Professor William Smith of the University of Utah. His study showed how the mental and physical stress people of color face from racism is similar to what soldiers experience in battle. He says that the stress of navigating in white spaces is mentally, emotionally, and physically draining for people of color. Every day, people of color are faced with interpreting the subtleties of microaggressions, deciphering the layers of discrimination included in the insults, and deciding whether or not to respond. The Mayo Clinic defines fatigue as a nearly constant state of weariness that develops over time and reduces your energy, motivation, and concentration. People of color are frustrated and tired of fighting racism and systemic oppression. Fatigue may be the way our body alerts us to the fact that we are depressed and in need of rest. 
end quote. And I could go on and on, but, um, you know, in, in, an, in this environment that we're in, where it is just, I mean, we are seeing uh, our people being lynched by the police right back to back. You know, we had George, well, Breonna Taylor, then we had George Floyd, then we had uh, Ahmaud Arbery right in the uh, middle who was um, uh, 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 killed by uh, 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 racist vigilantes. Um, and then we have this brother that was almost lynched, right? Escaped a near lynching um, uh, just a week ago. I'm, I'm curious about how do we combat racial fatigue when there's just an, an onslaught of anti-Black violence and anti-Black racism? How do we build resilience um, when we're in the pressure cooker of just white supremacy? How do we do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, we have to take like a multi-prong approach. It's not mm. a, a one-size-fits-all, but there are definitely some pieces that have, I found helpful and clients and also friends have found helpful. And one of one of them really is around what is going on um, in your body, in your mind, in your spirit? Um, how is it affecting other, like even your work and your relationships? I want to start with the body and that we tend to hold stress in our bodies mm-hmm. and and there's a way in which if we don't release it, that's where we see some of the, the physical damage um, okay. that we're, we're experiencing with high blood pressure and um, other, other forms of disease. And so it is, it's really being present in, in your body, and it can be a scary thing if, if you spend a lot of time not being present. And so there are ways in which um, we can do that. And, and so whether it, is, it's, it can be through exercise, it can be through deep breathing, it can be through um, prayer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and meditating on the word. Uh, and, and also just in terms of our um, taking just those moments uh, to get quiet. Uh, you know, when we're fatigued, it's easy to want to just kind of check out. And, right. and, and that's still, we're still disconnected from our bodies. But to actually take this moment to get quiet and to really locate where am I feeling pain? in my body? Um, where am I feeling pressure? And, uh, and allowing um, the Lord to really meet us in that place of coming to him with that. Uh, and, you know, we certainly need to connect with other people. We need to even see counselors. Um, mm. But to start with, where's our relationship with God at? Because ultimately, um, healing and resilience, uh, I believe, is ultimately going to come through our relationship with God and the power of God and the fact yeah, that yeah. that the Holy Spirit, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in resident in us. Mm-hmm. And so asking, Lord, where is that? Where, where am I holding pain? What is that pain about? Mm. Um, and, and so it's a form of listening prayer that I've found really helpful in <laughs> listening. God, you know me better than I know me. What, what's going on here? Mm. Um, why am I so exhausted? Mm. Um, and, and it can be so subtle because, you know, we're b- bombarded by images and um, social media and TV images and even yes. conversations that we've yes. been triggered. And it's yes. so subtle, like we might even miss it if we don't pay attention. And so getting quiet and asking, we 
in prayer have either something comes comes to the surface like oh it was that conversation oh it was that video that right. and this is what it was attached to because seeing that video said to me whatever it may have said to me no one is in control god's not in control you're not in control <laughs> you know you really should be afraid and yeah because you're on your own what is the lie mm. that we're, we're hearing and listening to um yeah so that that's mm-hmm. one another one is breathing that we tend mm-hmm. to have very shallow breathing we kind of race through life um and it just getting quiet again and and recognizing how am i breathing am i mm. breathing deeply or is it just shallow and because i'm so anxious and so taking some time to to breathe um and i would say you know in in the weariness talking to somebody and telling someone and i you know, you had mentioned before, Kimmy, about how yeah. you're like, well, did I make that up? Did that, is that re- right? Not, you know, did it, is this too much? Is it too right. little? Um, and so really having community and have people around us to validate the, that, yes, that in fact, you, you know, this is a lot. <laughs> this is too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, recognizing the places where, you know, there has been, there's been a moral injury, you know, where, we had an expectation that, you know, on whatever level that, you know, we were going to be able to go to the hospital and get COVID tested just like everybody else. Come and on. it did not happen. And so there is betrayals on that level. There can be betrayals on, you know, the level of, okay, you see, you know, evangelical Christians voting mm-hmm. up in droves mm-hmm. and then you're seeing the consequences of that. Right. And, um, right. and so even the need to work through that, um, to get at where's the place where I, I believed a lie, one, that they were going to be the answer, but secondly, the lie that either God doesn't care mm. or he's not really present. So really, it's really the, that we're weary um, and there's because of a reality that we're experiencing and we want to have God meet us in that reality and we want other people to meet us in that reality. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that those are important just you know whether it's sabbath and worship um uh getting counseling as i said and and, you know help having uh you know it's not even just having people around us but uh you know that that chapter talked about being in these majority white spaces and how Mm. exhausting that can be Mm -hmm. and that i'm a firm believer in you know affinity groups and places where (laughs) I can just go and I know I don't have to explain anything. I can say whatever. No one's going to critique me. I I have the white gaze looking over my shoulder. I can say this is what I'm experiencing and I can listen to what they're experiencing and we can meet each other and, and, you know, usher each other before the throne of grace. That's the thank God for the black church. Oh yeah, yeah. It's my favorite affinity space. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I think, um, and, and and even within predominantly white churches or in or in ones that are multi ethnic, multi racial, those spaces are still super critical. As a matter of fact, I would absolutely. argue that the health of those yeah. spaces is probably defined to what extent uh, yeah. black affinity groups are. Yeah valued, respected, and assumed um, to be there. So, you know, I was, um, you know, because there's often blowback around that. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because that's why it's a marker of it's a marker of health, right? It's a marker of health yeah. in that space. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So Sheila, I, you know, Kimney did a great job of of lifting up, you know, your storytelling ability, and I really, I really like the way that you um, lift up people's stories and kind of highlight their experiences to explicate some of the concepts that you lay out in the book. Um, and their stories become, you know, mirrors for us to really examine our own stories. And I was curious if you would share with our listeners, maybe one or two of those stories. They're all, they're all incredibly thoughtful and rich. Um, but is there one or two stories in particular that you could highlight that, um, you know, really challenged you or resonated with you or, um, it's kind of the one that kind of comes to mind when you think about, um, this topic of racial trauma. Um, so, uh, there's a story, um, uh, the story of Caleb and Carla, and that's the chapter that focuses on rage. And so, mm. you know, what we see with the two of them, uh, is just the, the effects of unaddressed pain, um, unaddressed, just, you know, the consequences of racism as it plays out in, in, in a life. And so mm. for Caleb, uh, you know, he grew up in a home where it was his mom and father um, and his brother and sister who were younger than him. And he he's an interesting person in that he, he actually got accepted because you know, he's a smart kid, got accepted into, um, it's a public school, but it's an exam school, so you have to take an exam to get into it. Um, unfortunately, this was this particular school has been known to have issues around just racism with the teachers, and he he literally lasted a year there. And I think um, mm-hmm. it's mostly majority white teachers, um, lots of um, prejudice and discrimination bias in the in the schools. And so he went from there to a public school, and in what we saw in, in Boston particularly was that there was this real divestment in terms of education. So after right. busing, so this is, this is more recent. We're talking like in the nineties, um, mm. late nineties, he uh, was in schools. And by that time uh, there was total white flight, you know, so this, the schools were predominantly black and brown and, you know, the teachers ba- barely wanted to be there. Um, the school supplies reduction in funding um, really the kids were not getting what they needed and even drug dealing was like an open secret in the school. Mm. And, and so over time he then, um, connected with other kids, um, partly from school and in the community. And then they formed like this informal gang. And, um, he talks a lot about just how much, you know, the expectation was that they weren't going to amount to anything that they were, um, you know, they were going to get into trouble. They were going to steal. And so on some level, they were like, oh, fine. We're, they expect us to do it. Then we're just going to go ahead and do it. Um, and as a result of um, just being, you know, constantly just harassment of being pulled over, um, stopped and frisked, um, you know, it, it really got bad. Uh, and then, you know, some of the kids started dealing drugs and um, there were arrests that happened, and uh, one kid actually was um, arrested for murder. He he grappled with what is, you know, what is his life worth? Um, what mm. is the value there? Is there a hope in a future for him? And um, we took 
uh, about what, eight or nine, they were like teenagers um, with us. We had a group of um, like 20 something people and we went to South Africa. And so he mm. was in that group. And um, that was a huge pivotal moment for him. And I talk about it in the book that, um, you know, oftentimes with, with um, young men and women, if, if particularly black ones, if, you know, if they are given this experience where they're allowed to rise up to an occasion and to, to kind of be the heroes in the story, that there's a shift that happens. And that's what I certainly witnessed with Caleb and that um, they were there. For, it was a reconciliation conference that um, it was, was cl- close to celebrating, um, you know, the milestones in South Africa and the changes that had happened. So that was the primary reason for bringing them there. But also we felt like this is an opportunity for them to get out and serve in the community. And there was an HIV project that they served at. And it was in the context of that, in the context of having conversations um, also with my husband, um, that it really changed the trajectory of his life. And that during that mm-hmm. period, he he had been drinking and drugging in, you know, most of his uh, teen years. And, this, mm-hmm. and he would, he says this is the first time that he actually did not drink or take drugs. And he could have yeah. because, um, yeah, all sorts of shenanigans were going on in the background um, that, you know, we became aware of, but he, he didn't. And, mm. um, and so to watch his life uh, shift and change um, has been just, um, it's been a miracle. Um, it's been a testimony um, to his other friends. And they also had, you know, shifts and changes. The other kids who had come along on this trip, it was pretty pivotal for so many of them. And to see him then go, come back home, finish out complete with school and actually go to college and then go on and get, you know, advanced, an advanced degree is just, it's a miracle. Um, Mm. And it's amazing. Uh, But one of the things that he talks about was just, you know, part of that process was him dealing with just the rage of having had those early experiences, um, having been locked into this narrative um, that wasn't true and wasn't real, wasn't all of who he was or is or could be. And mm. um, his walking through that, this, you know, ideas of what fa- false masculinity and, um, mm. you know, he's going to stand up for himself and just he's got to constantly um, prove his manhood. Um, and for him to come to this place of recognizing that the experience that he had, they weren't just, they weren't okay. And I think there are ways in which he, he would framed it like these are normal, kind of normalized these experiences um, that he had from childhood hmm. and realizing, no, the, it wasn't okay. And, um, right, right. and the need to really work through the anger about that and to lament. Um, and his faith was transformed um, and, and actually grew deeper out of that experience of going mm. to South Africa. Um, so wow. he certainly is one of those. Um, and then the other one is the other person is Carla. And um, when I had my book launch, I had several of the people who were in the book um, with me. And so they, they got to spoke, speak. And one of the things that Carla um, said was, you know, to the audience, you know, 
will uh, white people allow space for black rage? And mm. um, it was like, wow, that's, you know, uh, and, 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 and in that was this sense of, can you understand what it is that um, we've experienced? Can you understand why the rage is present? And, um, and certainly in her life, that has been an ongoing issue. Her father um, it was killed by police officers. Um, and this was in the late 60s. And he was a member of the Black Panthers. Um, and just the devastation of that on her family and, and on her, of losing her father mm-hmm. when she was only two. And, um, and just having this, um, this fear uh, particularly recently, and this rage about what is happening um, hmm. to, to Black men and women um, has just been something that she's had to really constantly grapple with. So even this notion of daily surrender, um, of her talking about the the anger and the rage that still surfaces because of um, the inaction um, that, that she's witnessing. Uh, and so those two stories are really, um, you know, and she, she goes into, a, you know, I share details about just what has helped her to manage that, that rage and to work through it. And um, counseling was a part of it. A part of it is those things that I actually talked about earlier. A lot of that are things that she and Caleb practice um, that help them to release that rage. So it doesn't, you know, the anger doesn't sit and fester and then it becomes rage and bubbles out. Mm, wow. You know, um, those are like really compelling and powerful stories that I think many of our um, listeners can I- either identify with or see um, some glimpse of themselves um, in those narratives. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, earlier on, you had mentioned uh that one of the ways that we can uh, begin to combat, you know, racial fatigue, rich, racial battle fatigue and um, build resilience is through therapy uh, or counseling. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have some advice on uh, how our um, sisters at the table can find a therapist that does maybe racial trauma therapy uh, and, and, and one that won't traumatize them again you know I, I know i've heard that people have gone to therapists and, yeah. and particularly if they're a white therapist yeah. they don't have the racial range you know and, and the education the ability you know to really enter into that particular suffering um and i'm curious about your any advice you might have for our um yeah our sisters at the table about how to find a racial trauma therapist how to begin to work do the work um, of healing uh racial trauma yeah so I, I always say, you know, we've got to look at things from like a continuum. So it's not just therapy by itself that because not everybody's going to one have access to therapy um, yes. to definitely in person. Um, there are opportunities to do counseling over the Internet and even more so now. Um, and so uh, I, I think that one has to really look at you like you're looking at your your experiences and where you're at right now and to figure out what do I need right now? Because part of therapy really is, it's like kind of this ministry of presence that this person is with me. They are listening. Like there's somebody who actually is listening and caring about what I've experienced. And um, it's helping me to kind of wade through all of that and, and to see 
um, what needs to be let go of, what do, what do I need to receive? Um, and so can you do that? You can do that in a therapist office, but you can also, there are lots of online communities um, mm-hmm. that are dealing with um, issues around racism and racial trauma. And even within some of them, I think, you know, we have the signing movement, which is focusing on black indigenous and other people of color, but, you know, Tasha Morrison's be the bridge, you know, they have, they have an affinity group within that, like those, sometimes that's all you need. It's a place mm. where you can tell your story and you feel like, and someone who can encourage you and you can keep going on. But when it starts to really affect like your, um, like these, you know, I laid out those symptoms and it's, it's really affecting your, your life, then getting a therapist is really, really important. And so um, I would say go online and um, there aren't a huge number of black therapists, but there are some. Um, and uh, so there are online um, connections that you can make. And, and any, even basically like psychology today, they have a counseling uh, list referral list and you could put in there you want a black therapist and you want them in a particular area you want to meet with them in person or you want to meet with them online and and with therapy I would just say there's no guarantee that even if you find a black person that they're going to be someone who's yes you know right. 100% like you know on to the issues around racial trauma and so it really is about whoever it is um, and if you can't even find a black person and it's you know, it's a white therapist, you, you're paying that person. So they had better be someone who can address this and help you walk through it. And if they're not, you know, and you can, you should ask them point blank, you know, this is, this is what I feel like I'm, I'm battling with. Is this something that you have worked with extensively? You know how to, you know, journey with me through this. And mm. if they're like, well, no, I don't really, whatever. They're not the person. They just don't, mm. I don't care what color mm-hmm. they are. Yeah. That is really helpful. I hope y'all were taking notes, sisters. Um, That's really, really helpful. Well, Sheila, thank you so much. We are out of time, but uh, this is a time for you to talk to uh, our sisters at the table and tell them how they can follow your work, find you on social media. Um, Yeah, this is your time. So I am, um, you can find me, SheilaWiseRow.com. That's my um, website. Uh, On social media, everywhere, it's SheilaWiseRow. So it's at SheilaWiseRow. Uh, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and I'm really actually new to Instagram and Twitter. Um, uh, Facebook, it's Sheila Wise Row as well. I do a lot of um, stuff on Facebook. Um, the Siren Movement, um, dot com. Uh, it also has a Facebook group um, that that's uh, connected to that. So those are different ways. And you can also just email me, info at SheilaWiseRow.com. And I'll, I'll respond to you now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, taking a seat at the table with us, Sheila. We really appreciate your wisdom, your expertise, your insight. Uh, it, it's a real, it's been a blessing to us. And I know it'll be a blessing to the sisters at our table. Uh, and of course we wanted to, 
thank the sisters at the table for for having a seat with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about Behind the Book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience by Sheila Wise Rowe. Uh, you can use the hashtag Truth's Table. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Truth's Table or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth's Table has a Patreon account so y'all can send your love offerings to uh, www.patreon.com slash truthstable or you can bless us at our PayPal which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truthstable is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York and we have been your hosts Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye y'all.